today's guest, Jakob Gilman, founder of High People. Both the acquisition of the search side of things, as well as kind of everything that happens post-hire, there's a lot of great technology there. Peak on, you know, automated tracking and analysis of engagement data. There's great technology there. But what's really underestimated is the impact and the potential of like really, really good um, selection. Um, and that was kind of the, the bird's eye view on the whole topic we we're working on with high people. The, the personal entry point was we were mega frustrated ourselves as hiring manager that we kind of entered a room like the one we're sitting in right now. And look, we look at a CV 15 minutes before the call. We maybe got a glance at the LinkedIn profile and then kind of ran through standard questions um, that were kind of fit to this being a culture fit interview or this being a, a skill fit interview. And then we're asked, hey, like, you know, please score on rate and, and would you hire or not hire? Jakob and I met through several events here in Berlin, um, what he organized. And now we organized a podcast with him. And we talked mainly about his journey, what shaped him most as an entrepreneur from starting to sell shoes um, up to his time at Pekin, who then got acquired from Workday. And there he got a bit into the HR tech field. His time at Optimizely, how Salesforce executives and managers shaped his mind and his career. And also about the quality of hire and how expensive it is to make hiring mistakes and what you can do about it. So a very insightful and um, exciting episode. Tune in. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Hi, Jakob. Tell, tell us more about your journey. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, happy to talk to you about uh, kind of the last couple of years um, and what I currently do. Yes. And it's also funny how we met because it was, I think it was directly in a webinar you organized and True. then at an event you organized. True. And now we do a podcast. I organized. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Full circle. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So um, yeah, maybe I think what would, would be super interesting for us to understand first is um, who are you and what shaped you most in your journey? Wow. Big question to kick it off with. <laughs> Um, my name is Jakob, uh, one of the co-founders uh, here at iPeople. iPeople is a, a software solution for modern recruiting and TA teams. Uh, we'll get into the details of that uh, probably later in uh, this session as well. So I'm very curious to talk about that. Um, what has shaped me the most? Um, uh, I think coming from a um, family and a, a city, Cologne, uh, Köln, Uh, that is very much kind of uh, entrenched in creativity and and uh, you know um, people you know taking maybe different routes than what I would have been expected. So Cologne is very liberal. Um, my family is kind of embedded in the whole like media um, uh, landscape. Oh, nice. I think that has shaped me quite a lot. Um, and how? Um, to not kind of always go for the kind of you know expected path that is set up for you. You know, be it this classic like. Um, dependency from like education leads to job, job A leads to job uh, job B. Um, I always found people interesting that take their own path, and I always try to kind of like 
make these like very conscious decisions around my career as well. Um, and I think, you know, what we we're doing every day with you know, building a company, building a team, building a product. So, you know, this entrepreneurial journey, it's the most creative thing that, uh, that one can do probably in the business context. Um, so yeah, if you ask me what has shaped me the most, I think that up, up, uh, coming in the, that kind of like family context. And what was the start of your career? I think you, when I looked at your profile, you were mm -hmm. in venture development and also um, doing some internships at VCs. Yeah, but the, I think the first proper career step was, was uh, selling shoes. Nice. Uh, Which shoes? Three days a week, Vans, uh, oh. mostly, uh, in, in a shop called Double Eight in Cologne. Uh, so twice a week after school and then every Saturday. Um, and kind of like grinding in my early years there. Um, and we, we slightly talk about kind of these like connection points in, in, in my career with go-to-market related activities and, and, and sales and software. I think that was the first step towards like the, the sales side of myself. Like what does it take to, you know, give somebody the product that they want, but also maybe help them make the decision. Nice. And um, this was in Cologne? Yep. Yeah. And the shoe store still exists? Unfortunately, not anymore. No, no, because you left. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> okay, and what what made you decide? Then you you studied economics. Um, I studied uh, business with a big focus and major in actually communications and culture. So very broad bachelor, and then a masters in Copenhagen Business School with a bigger focus on uh, that track is called like innovation and entrepreneurship. So kind of classic business school masters with a kind of side track on the entrepreneurial thing. What I did, I learned there is you can't study being an entrepreneur. You can't study anything that has to do with entrepreneurship other than maybe the kind of like um, research that happens around entrepreneurship. But uh, I think nothing could be more removed from you know, being an entrepreneur than uh, you know, doing research on it. Uh, but it was definitely yeah, an interesting time there. Um, but yeah, first professional step, setting shoes um, and then interned basically whenever I had the chance to intern uh, during school, uh, during my studies. Um, uh, I think I did three internships in venture capital during my bachelor's um, and then kind of grew out of that experience into being an operator um, in the field. And that was also kind of a very conscious decision. The, the venture track felt super, super, super exciting. And I could have seen myself go down that route as well, but I felt like um, the individuals in VC that I've met uh, throughout these uh, internships, one was with, with Kademic in Cologne, uh, one with uh, Christoph Mehr and Atlantic Labs uh, here in Berlin, and then um, one with Passion Capital in London. And the most interesting people I've met there were former op operators turned VC and not, you know, um, I mean, they are also great, but I've, I felt closer to those folks compared to the ones maybe coming from kind of the financial industry and then kind of switching over into from into investment background and so on. IB exactly or, or other um, other trades. There's a lot of folks from M&A, et cetera, going into to this world as well. And you need them. But I always found that the partners, the investment managers that did something um, entrepreneurship related before, these are the ones that really have seen it. So I consciously decided against spending more time there And to really jump into the field and get as much exposure to, you know, the the creative side of entrepreneurship. We talked about that, but also the responsibility that comes with this and this kind of building process of again, building a product, building a team, a service, a company. Yeah. So you you felt in the entrepreneurial spirit there? Yeah. yeah. I thought you wanted to say trap. <laughs> trap. <laughs> you fell yeah. into the entrepreneurial trap. 
Um, no, definitely. Um, and I think more or less every experience in those like early five, six, seven years have kind of like increased the interest and hunger and in, in, in throwing myself out there and, and, and doing something on my own. Um, very funny, Sebastian, my co-founder, I went through a very comparable experience. He took a different route working with big tech, but we kind of then after a couple of years met um, with the uh, yeah, um, same perspective on the pain point we want to solve with the product and the same hunger for, for building something. And for me, my journey went through, um, I think very much, you asked what shaped me the most. I think the, what, what was a big, big impact in this early, early years was being part of a kind of a mid-sized uh, SaaS company from, from me that was optimizely, they were freshly funded, I think, series B, Andreessen Horowitz went on board and they expanded uh, globally. What was the product? Um, A-B testing and personalization on the web. So at, at what time, what year was it? Were you uh, 2015. Oh, oh excuse me, 20, 20, end of 2014 and then into 2015. This was the time where A-B testing and sales marketing automation really got huge. Huge. Yeah. Like generative AI now somehow. Yeah, probably um, that is going to last longer and have a bigger impact. But in terms of hype, uh, very comparable. Um, you know, everybody was talking data-driven this, data-driven that. And the whole idea around being able to A-B test hypotheses with products, with websites, uh, online shops, apps uh, later on as well, rather than building, deploying, and then measuring was, was huge and um, optimizely Kind of laid the path for that. They were one of the earliest companies um, with definitely the best product back then in the market. Um, and I joined super low ranks in the sales team. I did um, half a year before that with, with Rocket in Southeast Asia. So kind of came from this like super weird trip of like crazy responsibility in a, in a country where you have no clue about. And then kind of went into this like SaaS sales track, which was super interesting and um, optimizely was kind of built and managed by then um, by a lot of former Salesforce folks. So they really came in with the playbook and being part of that for a they year. They know the game, right? Play, Salesforce, Salesforce, they also somehow invent certain things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and there's the Salesforce mafia in San Francisco. Um, in our world where we operate with high people, here we have the Zalando mafia in, in, in Germany with a lot of ex-Zalando folks in TA, in talent acquisition. Um, yeah, in general, uh, software sales, it's the Salesforce team for sure. Yeah, and that was extremely interesting to see how they build the organization, to see how they build the sales team, drive the go-to-market motion. And yeah, our task was operating out of Amsterdam to you know grow into different markets. Of course, my focus was uh, DACH or GSA, so Germany, Switzerland, Austria. Okay, nice. I, some... I spent some time, I think it was 2018, 19, mm -hmm. with um, some Salesforce um, managers and yeah. RAs to understand how they run sales yeah. from, from Dublin, from mm -hmm. I think the European headquarters mm -hmm. it was. And it was so insightful. Mm -hmm. It was the first time where I really understood how you can design an organization that mm -hmm. is just sales yeah. and how they design the career paths because yeah. you don't... You don't have the ability to hire so many people that you need a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And you also cannot manage the peaks. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they developed 
smaller roles like a sales associate, a BDR, a SDR, yeah. um, the roles that are classical right now, yeah. but how they just ran it overall to say, okay, yeah, that's the career trajectory mm -hmm. and you can start there, resource from university yeah. and educate them over one, two to four years mm -hmm. and depending on the need and the performance of certain new trained people, mm -hmm. they can take a market or a vertical or a yeah. product And for me, that was from a hiring strategy. It was mind blowing, mm -hmm. but it just works at scale. Yeah. If you are big enough yeah. and, and you have the unlimited demand side yeah. that you just need to sell, for instance. Um, but it was really outstanding. So what did you learn mm -hmm. from that time? Um, how to, how to build a sales organization? I think you mentioned an important point there that certain things work on scale and certain things don't work on scale. And I think that's super important to like highlight over and over again, because um, middle management sales leaders moving from one 500 people company in B2B SaaS to the next one, that makes sense. And they operate their playbooks and it's very comparable. Um, hence the reputability of a go-to-market motion and sales approach makes sense there. But I think the risk is, There are then amazing blog posts and slide decks on that motion and on that blueprint. But what works for 500 people, you know, product market fit B2B SaaS company probably doesn't work for your 200, 100 or 50 employee company that is in a different stage. Mm. Um, so if you ask me what have I learned being part of such a like full-blown, full-scale sales organization is that, you know, Companies and sales orgs and go-to-market teams, marketing teams, go through life cycles. You, know, um, you operate in, in the context of recruitment and TA yourself. Thomas, I do with high people as well. And that often requires that you know teams reshape, um, you know, roles are redefined. And I think that's super important to to bear in mind because otherwise you you might fall for the trap that you are, you know. Uh, using one, one company's model, but it doesn't work for, for yours. What's interesting though, with the, the way that a Salesforce or back then an, an optimizely works, it's that it's quite hierarchical. Um, and that, that's an interesting like juxtaposition to how at least back then these companies describe themselves, you know, uh, very personal, very close, very family like. The sales seems actually like super steep uh, hierarchies and, and, and pyramids for, you know, for, for for certain reasons. And I think that's also the Salesforce school. It's like you, you see like a lot of like ex-military slang in there and also all the, the titles, you know, are influenced by that. Um, and I think, again, that works for big scale, big volume. Um, you know, smaller companies need a different approach. I, I read an interesting piece on recently if, um, on the what's called the renaissance seller which is kind of the first ae that operates alongside the founder for a year or even two and then in that kind of like pot of founder and first ae actually actively shapes the positioning the go-to-market motion uh, the sales motion and i found that a, a, a very interesting one uh, in terms of like being fundamentally different than you know industry specific pots or you know like vertical focused uh sdr bdr ae teams um but again come to my point like that might be the one thing that you need right now versus you know what a npal or uh you know, another like 
full-blown large company needs. Yes, or now I even see in SAP, because I just did a podcast with the SAP mm. Germany CEO, yeah. and she runs around 2,500 people for the sales and service organization in Germany. Yeah. And she also talked about some roles, and then there was a new role um, I just heard about, mm -hmm. a value-add engineer. <laughs> it, I also heard and saw this um, at LinkedIn, yeah. where... A seller at LinkedIn mm -hmm. cannot define the price for the account. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They first need to go to the value estimation or value ah, yeah. value team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they estimate the pricing for the AA yeah. that the EA can offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Interesting. Uh, AE, sorry. For the AE that um, he, he or she can offer mm -hmm. um, to the account because they don't have this, as you said, independence. They have yeah. the strict rules and hierarchies they yeah. need to stick to that and i think that's also something when you go into this value-based pricing mode yeah. that is also a function that is now even mm -hmm. getting more and more important right that you mm. not give a price tag and say you pay by seat or something but you pay by value and depending on your discovery mm -hmm. you determine the value which can be very tricky <laughs> also something it can be driven by the buyer i guess if they if they get it yes definitely. interesting yeah and i think that's something you see Again, with, with scale, that there's like a huge degree of differentiation and um, split of responsibilities um, and way more levels and way more specialization um, compared to, again, the, you know, one founder, uh, one AE or two AEs. Um, yeah. But my first thought for the value adds kind of like sales enablement function would be it's a great job for software actually to like determine uh, like uh, potential value and, and help price better. Um, but I guess if you have super complex products and pricing changes a lot, that makes sense that you have a And also for with A B testing maybe mm -hmm. it's it's easier or with an SAP or a Salesforce where you directly can connect it to revenue generated. Mm -hmm. I think for recruitment solutions it's then a bit harder because mm -hmm. the buying side yeah. they need to take or buy into the assumptions. Yeah. You, you generate together, right? Yeah. And it can be a, a study or a, a custom result or whatever. Yeah. But if they don't believe it, yeah. it's not, it's enough, it, it's worthless. Yeah. 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 For revenue, it's a bit simpler because you can just calculate it and say, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's proven. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> true. True. Yeah. And then for them, they maybe need somebody who's like <clears throat> deep into the numbers and uh, exactly. kind of help build that. Interesting. But I'm always interesting to also understand how you think about this when you do mm -hmm. pricing and how do you um, offer your service because I think mm -hmm. you also add a lot of value mm -hmm. when your product is used yeah. correctly. And yeah. I also see it on my end with PeopleWise mm -hmm. when companies really utilize mm -hmm. our service mm -hmm. for the right company stage in the right environment, they can get an 10x return from what they pay from it mm. some mm. some companies just need to open up for that or need mm. to need to to be be able to understand what you can do with certain products when you use it correctly how do you approach that with five people yeah great question um i think also here spoiler depends on the stage and i think pricing um needs to develop with um how your offering develops um and the key thing for us early on was um, simplicity and that everybody gets it. Mm. Um, that companies that want to use high people, um, and I can share a bit about the why of our, like why we exist and, and why companies use, use us in a second, but that they understand how we price. 
and there's not kind of a black box pricing that you know leaves the buyer with more questions and maybe also a kind of an, in certain degree of insecurity around are there hidden costs that I'm running into um, are there, is there anything like we we don't understand we can't control and there are pricing schemas that are built in that way by design and I think it's you know it doesn't pay tribute to the relationship we as a software vendor built as a partner uh, with our with our clients and with our users um, so for us it was it was that it was the initial thought and it's still very much driving the way we price where we you know make sure there's like two drivers that everybody understands and you know, I as a buyer can also say okay I want either less volume for example more features um, and about that can like basically control what do I need and also can see how that correlates with with price I think very often you have these like extremely complicated like huge feature walls that you don't really don't really get um, you don't really understand there's like 100 toggles you toggle on and off um, HubSpot is a great example for that yes <laughs> um, I found myself on a renewal call with HubSpot recently asking for them like asking for an explanation from them what do we currently actually have and like, where are du where maybe duplicate features in the different packages we've enabled because it's like, so complicated in case you like my show please subscribe I would really appreciate it gut feeling by design uh, I don't think uh, I, I think that there are ways for them to make it to make it easier so for, for us simplicity um, and yeah, just like you said of course the the um, the approach we're running and I think now we have to add a bit more context on high people but The, the reason company uses is um, to increase the efficiency within their processes. And that's a very clear ROI, right? I did something manual. It had direct costs. It had opportunity costs. And now I'm automating it with high people. You know, there's directly kind of an efficiency gain I can calculate or we can also help calculate. And then, you know, that can be compared to what a, a high people would cost. And on the other side, and that's kind of the big topic we're chasing as a company, uh, we help... Um, people in recruitment, but also hiring managers to really make the best hire. Um, so the quality of hire as an end result is something that goes up harder to calculate. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a metric that a lot of companies look at differently, um, both in terms of how they define this, but also how they calculate this. And, um, you know, what we do pays direct tribute to that. If you use high people properly, it will help you to increase your quality. How do hire. you calculate the quality of hire? Um, bef before I get into kind of the details on, on kind of our approach here, maybe just kind of a quick, kind of, just kind of zooming out, mm -hmm. explaining for everybody um, who listens and what, what, you know, quality of it actually is and what the different angles are you can take. Um, it's, it was referred to, I, I can't recall the author, but as the holy grail of uh, recruitment data, um, which sounds nice and fancy, but it also means it's like hard to find, right? <laughs> yes. I can agree. <laughs> Who actually found the Holy Grail? So, um, and that is, is just due to, you know, you ask 10 people how they calculate quality of hire, you, you'll, I'll guarantee you, you'll get probably nine to 10 different answers back. Um, and they're probably also all right. Um, um, high people as a, as a software vendor, you know, exists because um, we partner with companies and give them access to data that helps them make the best hire. Um, that's the main reason we exist. We started with the company back in end of 2019, um, Sebastian and myself um, coming into kind of that world as hiring managers. Um, we both knew the impact of, you know, kind of the, the 
the people side on a business's uh, outcome and performance, right? If you find amazing people and they stay long and they are engaged, you know, that has a tremendous impact on your organization. Um, but we also felt like there's different ways on how you can work on improving the people side, right? You can you know, basically look at it as a, from an acquisition standpoint, like where can I find great people? Then you can take a look at the kind of selection side of things. How do I make sure that the person I hire is the best person for the job? And then everything post-hire, so learning and development, um, uh, maybe great onboarding, maybe you know having engaged employees, measuring this with solutions like Picon and others. And that's maybe some one one thing missed in the intro, like, uh, my kind of like experience with uh, with Picon early on. Um, and we felt like so Sebastian and myself when we started the company, high people, we felt like both the acquisition or the search side of things, as well as kind of everything that happens post hire, there's a lot of great technology there. Picon, you know, automated is tracking and analysis of engagement data there's great technology there but what's really underestimated is the impact and the potential of like really really good um, selection um, and that was kind of the the bird's eye view on the whole topic we we're working on with high people the, the personal entry point was we were mega frustrated ourselves as hiring manager that we kind of entered a room like the one we're sitting in right now and look we look at a cv 15 minutes before the call we maybe got a glance at the LinkedIn profile and then kind of ran through standard questions um, that were kind of fit to this being a culture fit interview or this being a, a skill fit interview. And then we're asked, hey, like, you know, please score and rate and, and would you hire or not hire? And um, the company I worked at prior to starting high people um, adjust great company in the is it also space. where you did a lot of hiring because I think they grew fast and you were also at a bigger management role right precisely precisely and we grew extremely fast decentrally so in 10 plus offices and you know I felt like not being in a room but being on a zoom call um, 30 60 minutes with somebody in Japan does it really kind of allow me to make the best call on who has the biggest potential for that role? So coming back to this, like that kind of the individual pain we felt ourselves, like if, you know, people are driving organizations to be successful and if, you know, the key thing that can really be improved by technology is that selection process, then that's a problem worth solving. So we jumped at that end of 2019. Um, yeah. And long story short, and you know, the, The job we do today for companies around the globe, biggest sports brands uh, out there, technology companies, uh, insurance companies, companies in the fintech or healthcare industry, what we help them to do is very efficiently. Can you also name some spotlight customers? Uh, we, I can I can drop a couple of names. There's uh, the reason I went for kind of industries now because there are a few also that we can't name yeah, unfortunately. I, I, I um, but uh, we in Germany, for example, maybe for the listeners coming here from Germany, we work with uh, the amazing team at uh, WeFox, at Salonis. Um, in, in the US, we work with a really interesting company called IntelliCare and Healthcare. They hire 40,000 nurses per year. Wow. And they do this with us. Um, and what all of these companies do is they, they get additional data points that really allows for an objective assessment. Does Thomas fit the job? as, for example, founder at PeopleWise. Um, and we do acquire the data very often. How would you assess that? There's two, two ways we go about this. Um, uh, the first is pre-employment assessments and tests. Um, so we take what have existed for a long, long time with 
you know, classical personality assessment, um, we, but we enrich this with uh, assessments around skills and capabilities. Can he speak English well enough to be able to work in, in the UK? Mm. Um, is he able to operate uh, the technology that we use here? Um, is he, you know, um, sharp enough so you can assess cognitive ability as well and really kind of complement this with anything you need to know to predict does Thomas fit the job or not? We have companies that go very heavy on soft skills with us. Does the person have grit? Uh, is the person resilient enough to work here with us? And all these things sound, um, I think, probably interesting, uh, but also something you feel like you could assess in an interview. The, the thing is, the data shows you can't. Um, mishires, so people leaving voluntarily uh, in the first 12 months of their employment, is an enormous problem and accounts to one trillion of cost, one trillion in the US alone. Because people get hyped on markers in CVs, okay, great university, great former employer, um, they are biased, right? They rehire themselves, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we've, we've all been there. Like if I talk to very experienced hiring managers, very experienced leaders in talent acquisition or recruitment, and I ask what's your best and what's your worst hire, and, and how come like you have hired that person? Like they're often not that far from each other. And, mm. and, 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 and it is very, very hard to find the best uh, candidate for the job for, for all the reasons that I've mentioned. And that's where we come in. We, you know, with the assessments and, and pre-employment tests we do, we really help you to understand, does that person fit the job? Can she, you know, perform? Is she the best fit? Um, and we complement this with reference check data, for example, also fully automated. Um, so, Yes, we've assessed you, but now we get feedback from, let's say, your former manager, your former colleague, um, the, the person how, that you've managed. How do you do this automatically? Um, we own the process completely. So it's asynchronous for you as the company asking for this. Um, you define, I want to get five references uh, until next Friday. They should be all managers and ideally coming from Salesforce, uh, Figma and Amazon. And then our workflow requests these references from the candidate and we reach out to the references and walk them through um, what we call a intelligent survey-based setup. Um, that means intelligent, means we don't just ask you standardized questions, um, but we go deep um, understanding the responses and then digging deeper. So mm. what experienced recruiters can do really well is peel the onion. I ask you a question and then I ask again and again to really get to the to the core mm. um, and that's something we can do as well if, if we you know we collect a reference about you and we feel or we see in the data there's an anomaly in the responses we automatically dig deeper to really understand what's at its core and if you How look at these data points because for instance yeah. you do this async yeah and there is let's say the reference track running and the final interviews running in parallel takes two weeks and then you get three responses. Mm. They were, they were a, a good positive pattern. Yeah. And then there is one anomaly. Yeah. Do you then also check the first three questions again on the anom anomaly to? Yeah. No. Uh, what we do is we look for patterns in in the data. So you might um, remind me of the name of your co-founder. Mina. Mina. So you might be a reference for Mina, and. In you are, you're being asked 15 questions and the result is an anomaly in the first 10. So you say she's super extroverted and then the next question you point more towards high degree of introversion. Ah, okay. Within the questionnaire. Within the data okay, set. Okay. Yeah. And then we go deep 
um, on these points to really understand what's behind this. And the, the beautiful thing with, with this is we take bias out of the reference check, which is crazy high. If you think about you want to hire somebody, you do reference check at the end of the process. You want to hear the good, uh, the good stuff. And, and um, um, so we, we take that out. We fully automate it. So it's, uh, it's uh, not really causing any many work anymore. And we're getting really, really insightful data points that helps you to either confirm what you've seen. Okay, great. She's the best fit. Let's hire her. Or maybe it sur surfaces things that you should have a closer eye on. And that combined with the assessment data we obtain just makes it super powerful. Our agenda is not to say stop looking at CVs or stop doing interviews. We say continue this, but complement it with data that is really objective and insightful and you know, do it in a way that is like really efficient. Because, I mean, if we look outside kind of the window into the TA and recruitment worlds today, it has been shaken up, right? Mm -hmm. um, teams are smaller. Um, there's a lower volume of hiring. So the pressure on really finding the best people is way, way higher now than it has been a few years ago where people you know, were compensated on like hiring fast and hiring high volumes. Just some numbers yep. here, just for context, it's, it's crazy. Tech alone, um, the layoffs we've seen this year are already 3% higher. And today is uh, mid-April yeah. compared to every thing we've seen in the last year in tech layoffs so it's around 170,000 or 168,000 uh, 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 levers and yeah that I just for context that, that yeah. I, I looked it up and mm. I did an episode on a podcast and mm. then also here at, in my podcast where we looked into the same numbers you just referred to yeah. and back then in February I thought of looking just at the big logos yeah. uh, Meta mm -hmm, Google, mm -hmm. Salesforce, all the companies who Amazon. did later of yeah. Amazon, yeah. yeah. I thought, okay, this might is now the peak, yeah. but now yeah. I think maybe we see another wave yeah. and then maybe this Q1 to, to Q3 this year mm -hmm. might be the peak mm -hmm. and then it may be slowly discontinuous, mm -hmm. hopefully. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I'm, I was more positive in February <laughs> than, than I am now because also yeah. I did a lot of interviewing for senior leaders. And there I saw a lot of people from big tech companies mm -hmm. who were laid off in the beginning because usually they shut down the management layers. <coughs> and then they assess again, mm -hmm. okay, what do we really need in a second iteration? And I was not aware of that, but mm -hmm. this is now going on. Mm -hmm. And there might be some more layoffs in May, June, July yeah. Yeah. at the big tech companies for different orgs. Yeah. Yeah. So we will see. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so super interesting. I, I wanted to ask something, but no, I, I forgot about it, what it was. <laughs> no, but uh, so I, I, I'm not in the position to like pr predict where this is going, but the, the 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 leaders within recruitment and talent acquisition that um, we work with and that I talk to regularly, um, more or less all say, when we come back, we'll think, live and breathe talent acquisition, so recruiting, differently. Um, and you know the 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 common sense is you know, smaller teams um, that do their job differently compared to how we've doing this before. Yes. Um, I'd say let's see uh, because you know once the markets uh, um, uh, bounce back and uh, maybe in a few years we're back in like a, a, a bull market like we have seen it in the last 10 years 
maybe we'll be back and doing exactly what has been done before. I think so. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, but uh, but what what kind of the word in the street at the moment at least is the 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 function is shaping in a different way. There's a, a huge emphasis on making the and right it's hire. Sophisticated a lot. Way more sophisticated. You know what? Yeah. I, this is what I wanted to say. Yeah. The, when you just look at the Nasdaq, it yeah. really um, increased in value mm -hmm. very fast in a very short period of time mm -hmm. post COVID, mm -hmm. and that also means somehow a correlation that mm -hmm. there are there there is as much growth mm -hmm. in terms of total market overall than never before, mm -hmm. as well as the most demand for open positions as mm -hmm. never before. Mm -hmm. And there were not so many recruiters out there being able to hire all those requisitions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what I saw really as a pattern, a lot of companies just grew for the sake of growth. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was a, a rationale behind it. Mm -hmm. Growth at all costs. Mm -hmm. Let's go for it. Totally right at the circumstances. Yeah. Um, but how to do that was not right because sometimes really, really junior Mm -hmm. recruiters were doing jobs were oversubscribed mm. and somebody maybe is a working student and then a recruiter mm -hmm. first of all i think recruiting is not a junior position mm -hmm. um, because it has high impact as yeah. you said yeah. one trillion just in the u.s of mishires yeah. crazy amount yeah. why outsourcing this to junior people yeah. or giving junior people so much responsibility yeah. and freedom right they need training yeah. but if you just okay Go for it and do it. And then you also have a junior hiring manager who maybe is a first-time hiring manager and a first-time yeah. recruiter. Oh, my God. You can make so many mistakes that are super, super, super expensive. You see down the line. Mm. And this happened mm -hmm. at scale. And now the market is cleaned up mm -hmm. by all the people who maybe also just were unlucky, but also mm. who were just in the wrong job get wiped out again mm. or got wiped out again. Yeah, and the costs are even higher Um so there's a study of Gallup that um, the whole issue of kind of disengaged employees <clears throat> and we had like quiet quitting uh, as, as kind of one uh, phenomenon in the last that was a big term six nine months there yeah. um, that's that's seven point eight billion in cost um, each year uh, globally because of the lack of productivity and what exactly does it mean for you quiet quitting. Um, so th that number refers to kind of the productivity. So the 7.8 from Gallup to that's, that's co um, connected to kind of the lack of productivity because of low engagement, quite quitting in that context can be a result of that where, you know, people stay in their job, but are um, not as engaged and productive and impactful as they could be um, just because they're kind of disconnected with the company. Um, and, You know, the, the, the whole discussion around quiet quitting came from COVID and post-COVID um, developments and how work has changed and how not working from the office but working from home. And, and now also kind of the hit that companies are taking with layoffs, how that is kind of shaping the relationship between company and employee. Um, my perspective on this is that there's a hyper-complex, huge problem, but it starts... In, in the recruitment process, right? right. Um, Hiring somebody in the, in the wrong environment, for instance? In the wrong environment, in the wrong job. Um, and I remember, you know, before starting High People, I interviewed for a big American fintech and I obviously didn't, didn't accept and take the job, but then started the company, luckily. Um, but I could have seen myself take that job as well 
Um, square was it square? No, it was a <laughs> was a different different one, but also like in in uh, in that context there. Um, um, even though I kind of felt like mm, might not be the right thing, I, I do want to do my own thing, but this could be interesting. And one version of me could have said like, okay, let's do this anyways. Um, and I would have looked like maybe a kind of a logical good hire for them, even though I wasn't. Um, and that's why, you know, because you made the decision. So no, I made the decision against this, but if I would have taken the job, um, I knew myself, I probably would have stayed for like a long, long time. Um, but that's kind of the in, in, internal view on this. My point is if you go for kind of the standardized recruitment process, we like interview, interview two, case study, on-site, dinner, let's hire that person. You know, you, you, you can make great hires, but you also can make terrible hires. And I would have, for them, it would have been a terrible hire because, you know, if I would have taken that job, my engagement would have been low because I would have wanted to get out and, and, and do my own thing. And um, that's my, my point with like, you know, if you want to think about people as the driving factor for organizations, and you, if you want to think about what you as, an, as a company can do to um, impact that positively as much as possible, there are these different entry points. Um, again, where do I found my find my talent? How do I keep it? Um, but then also from the talent I found, who really is the best fit? And, you know, and that's the key focus um, we're having here here at High People, um, and you know the 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 numbers that we're seeing right now with like TA teams getting smaller also means the problem is getting bigger because um, it's smaller TA teams and they need to do the job on their own. Um, we we talked about the the the, the development of, of like you know big teams, small teams, and mm. and, and hiring vol volumina. Um, recruitment has been seen as the cost center for a long long time. There's still is sometimes. Why? Because it also, like, objectively seen, they were a cost center, right? Like, all of a sudden, you need to hire 50 recruiters. Then the hiring kind of wave comes down. You have a lot of people there that you don't really, like, uh, you know, need for the amount of requisitions and open jobs, etc. And I really think that is changing and it's changing for the good that you have, like, really strong, uh, super experienced tech-enabled and equipped teams that are extremely efficient rather than these overblown, mm. uh, very large um, yeah, TA teams that are, at the end of the day, you know, um, doing a good job seasonally, but um, in the in the long term are, you know, too, maybe too large for, for the organization. Yeah, and that, I think that's always a general business problem. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you always need to deal with a lack of resource in an unplanned way <laughs> mm -hmm. because that's yeah. how economy works right mm -hmm. there is an opportunity or not or mm -hmm. there are certain market dynamics and you need to respond to it or you yeah. just place a bet and then sometimes you're right sometimes you're wrong so sometimes you need to double down on this one opportunity that comes up now yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you don't have the team okay yeah. you can then build it but yeah. then maybe it's too late <laughs> and then yeah. you have a team and the opportunity is not there anymore <laughs> exactly <laughs> so yeah. that's this is also <laughs> What I um, found out when talking to some meta people, mm -hmm. I always thought they do everything perfect. Mm -hmm. um, but then through some also reference checks and so on, mm -hmm. um, I, Very good. <laughs> I digged a bit deeper and yeah. I was also curious in understanding the context. And yeah. I think they are very good. So big tech companies are very, very good on the technology side. Yeah. But what they also all 
do not way better than let's say just a unicorn or just a startup yeah. maybe better than a startup but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a more major startup the planning side mm -hmm. why because if there is then mm -hmm. let's say the founder or the board and yeah. they decide now okay different yeah. track we need to invest now in the metaverse mm -hmm. change everything yeah. Yeah. backwards plan now right and then yeah. This yeah. also feels like, okay, couldn't we have planned this better? No, sometimes it's just a decision needs to be executed now at scale. That's crazy sometimes. Yeah. And then you need you have to have this flexibility and also know your metrics and know how to respond and be very flexible and, and enabled. Yeah. And therefore you need a very smart yeah. and capable team, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the the service side that enables that is always going to be there. I think what we're going to see in the next five years is the technology side um, really catching up even more. So if you look at SaaS spend and HR, it has been pretty like steadily growing by 10, 15% year over year for the last couple of years. So there's consistent catch ups on that side, um, with HR, TA, recruiting teams being more enabled, having more tools at their disposal, being able to be data driven, um, being able to plan and forecast better, um, et cetera. And I think that is something that is going to just continue to, to grow um, and there are industries that are very far advanced um, that are very modern forward thinking you know by design data driven and open to technology um, but of course there's also this you know enormous uh, number of uh, companies out there that you know as we speak Maybe thinking about doing the first jump from spreadsheet to uh, applicant tracking system. Yeah. Or, I don't know, from a pen and paper assessment to online assessment. So there is also still that world out there. And we, we sometimes forget to, to talk and think about them that are like not ahead of the curve, not on the curve, but uh, behind the curve. Uh, How do you serve the customer in the US with 40,000 nurses a year? Mm -hmm. We don't interview them all, <laughs> so that's not what we do with high people, right? We do we do run automated processes to to help them get, you know, rich data and insights efficiently, but you know, to eventually inform the best hiring decision possible, and that works for us very well as a as a, a software vendor from uh, operating from Europe. We have teams here on the customer support front that you know uh, support and enable them in their business hours. Um, And, you know, anything we do with them regarding like product feedback loops or trying to understand what their challenges are and, and, and so on and so forth. And so the product and engineering team here in Europe, and that is, that is also feasible and doable with the, with the time zone difference. Um, you know, eventually, you know, we might, you know, do this podcast again in a year or two or three. You know, we, we might have a team in, in the US then. Let's see. Uh, but for now, us as a European company, we're able to, Uh, to grow in the US, um, to work with some of the largest brands there and enable them and support them. How did you close them? Um, no, nothing magical or out of the ordinary, uh, to be honest. Um, it might have, and we talked about kind of my background and experience also working for large uh, US uh, tech SaaS players. Maybe that experience have helped us here to kind of like replicate processes on the go-to-market side that they know uh, so we were talking we're talking the same language um, you know with with buyers in the US as we do with buyers in the UK or, or Europe or Asia 
In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. And, um, and what's your market segmentation? Mm -hmm. So you, do you target Europe and US and UK or also yeah. globally? Yeah, no, so we have customers around the globe. Um, and of course, there's like you know, customers coming in via inbound and, you know, swiping the credit card, starting to use our people and then over time growing with us. They come from literally anywhere. Um, the big focus for us is Europe and the US. So that's where we kind of focus our you know, go-to-market energy on proactively. And that's the regional segmentation? And yeah. do you also have a selectation by company stage and by industry, for instance? Um, company stage, um, not really, but company size and, and, and growth, right? For us, companies that are growing at a, in a certain rate are really interesting because that's where the problems arise that we can solve so, so well, right? Yeah. So if inefficiencies in the recruitment process and lack of data uh, to, to make the best, well, most well-informed decision. Um, and that, that often happens with companies that are, you know, sitting, uh, kind of between the, you know, few hundreds on the lower, lower end and, uh, five to 10,000 on the larger end. Um, so that's kind of the, the scope. So you could say like mid market, uh, um, up to upper mid market. Um, so no true enterprise play, you know, with like 50,000 FTEs. Uh, yet yet yeah but we'll see again maybe a future version of uh, of myself sitting on a podcast in a year or two from now will will be different yeah, hopefully hopefully there yeah. is a lot of inefficiencies out there to resolve with big organizations True. how do you see the ai movement mm -hmm. um at first super refreshing i think um the overall motion that there's you know a generative ai accessible for basically everybody is extremely exciting I think what is going on in the market, you know, its breadth is extremely creative and, and fun and, and, and great to see. Um, two things that I personally follow and find very exciting. How is big tech responding to this? And you can see Microsoft, um, you know, deploying um, great ways to kind of um, enable the usage of their, their tools and technology, right? So that uh, Excel... Uh, and, and other solutions will be kind of guided by AI. Um, so I think that kind of enhancement of an experience, I use tech, but I have support while using it is, is fantastic. HubSpot did a piece recently where you can basically like in a conversational way, <clears throat> you can share and, and you can create a prompt on you know, 15 individual actions by just saying, hey, I met with Thomas. We talked about this. I'll get back to him next week. Uh, and maybe find out from text uh, from sound to text for instance yeah and then and then into into crm records right i think that's super that's super cool uh, again uh, microsoft is doing the same with their system so like to just lower the barrier to entry of i interact with technology and i use it i think that's one interesting track the other is, is like all the pinpoint players that are right now are creating something completely new you know driven by uh, by generative ai i think the impact for us here at High People and the impact for our industry is extremely exciting because um, it turns, it, it really flips flips the script. Um, things that have been crucial in order to you know, find and, and hire the best people are kind of losing their value. So if I'm applying at, um, I don't know, a random company in the steel industry tomorrow where I have no knowledge about, 
it takes me 30 seconds to write the best cover letter that I've seen in the last 10 years. Um, so cover letter, letter off the table like will never be looked at again. Um, I, I, I don't think so. Um, like, you know, optimizing CVs to make sure they are you know, close to what the job description is asking for is kind of echoing it, it, its language, etc. Also writing job descriptions. I mean, a very good then, hire with exactly asking yeah. ChatGPT on designing the whole hiring process by all the input values I delivered. <coughs> of course, I needed to do some yeah. thinking, yeah. but I ran it through the, the algorithm and yeah. it was very well designed. Yeah. Of course, you need people still experts to judge if it's good or not. Yeah. But you can optimize a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, I mean, a lot of things are are in motion there. Of course, we also <coughs> we also here to help people have a have a um, you know an eye on how can our customers and users benefit from um, uh, you know generative AI in the context of assessing candidates in the context of understanding does this person fit the job can she perform and there's numerous ways on how this probably is going to play out in the next couple of years. Um, But I think you know the, the big impact in for the world of recruitment is you know the, the cards are reshuffled on, on what you look at to understand who fits and who doesn't, uh, just because the tool is available for for uh, a candidate. Um, yeah, and 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 that changes behavior on the recruiter side. That changes behavior on the on the candidate front. And then second, the tools that are going to be available for me as a recruiter are just going to be you know way more easier to operate. And provide way more insights, right? Um, if you think about, again, I'm applying at your company. You ask me to do a 15 minute assessment, then you do a reference check. You get five references back. You know that's you know a lot of data to work with. I think we do a great way on visualizing it and, and making it very applicable and usable. But you know, think about such big and deep data sets also being you know way more easier to work with because it's you know. At different layers of complexity, it's more summarized, maybe, maybe more contextualized to what you're what you're looking for with your job description, etc. So, yeah, personally excited. And I think going to have a big impact on recruiting, especially on some some volume recruitment when mm -hmm. you need to go into one job, and then you can I think see a lot of patterns there, and it's mm -hmm. really sometimes really just a volume game with a certain level of quality, mm -hmm. and. That pieces, I think, can be very much driven and impacted by the whole movement that is currently happening mm -hmm. on the generation of application mm -hmm. side to the evaluation side to then preparing the whole onboarding and yeah. the organizational piece. That's yeah. super interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it starts small now, right? Uh, I, as a recruiter, I don't need to you know, spend an hour drafting job descriptions anymore. I can do this in minutes. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Analyzing scorecards is something I can also do in a in a, in a second. Um, uh, like, like I said, understanding and, and analyzing assessment data, maybe also coming up with with content on that side, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's really, you know, you know, it fits well into the the market that we're looking at. We talked about this a few minutes ago. Smaller teams, more focused on getting the right hire, uh, which is a daunting task, right? Yeah. It's it's challenging. And I think technology is going to play a bigger part in making that happen in the future. Um, we're going to be part of that with high people. Um, you know, in general, more technology will be part of that uh, moving forward. And how did the time at Workday or Beacon mm -hmm. shaped you to, um, with, with yeah. high people? Because there is a, yeah. a overlap. Yeah, true. Um, so uh, 
that was a very brief time um, I spent with uh, the team at Peakon back in, in Copenhagen where the company was founded. Um, I was studying there. Uh, I wanted to work uh, next to my master's. I heard that uh, the former um, kind of or the, what then became the, the founding team of Peakon, that there was this group of, of, of folks that are working on something new. Um, uh, they, they prior to that Uh, uh, sold a sold a company to uh, to Cisco, and I knew they were in town. I knew they were building something. And I reached out and I was like, "Hey, I I heard you're working on something in HR tech. I'm I'm super curious. Let's, can can we talk? I want to know what you're doing." And then met with them, and uh, that turned into you know an employment um, for for some time. Again, only brief time. So after six months, I left and then uh, switched over to to just here in Berlin. But that time was. You, Very, you spend in market research there, I guess, or something similar. Yeah, it was kind of a, a broader go-to-market function. So again, kind of the whole spectrum: you know, closing first customers, uh, doing marketing events, you know, doing a bit of demand gen. So kind of a very generalist go-to-market role. Did that shape you in founding high people? In a sense, um, what I've learned there is that in a world where you have kind of massive suite products where everything is available. Um, you know, we have companies, you know, a very well-known software company here in, in, in Germany. We have a CRM, uh, uh, an HRM, an ATS, etc. So, in, in worlds where this exists, a company like Picon can succeed. And you know, Picon is different in a way, or was different in a way that it was like one pinpoint solution to do one thing really, really well: mm -hmm. you know, tracking and measuring employee engagement. And all of these like larger suites had that as a, like a subset, small feature. But the problem was so painful and so so large. The company said, "Hey, we we need improved technology to nail that problem." Um, so yeah, we're working with that suite, but we're also getting this solution uh, in place because we know we're getting the best the best technology, the best data to do so. And that was a, a big influence for me um, and for us as a team to to start thinking about the opportunity of fixing the issue with, you know finding the right people for the job uh, with high people because you know um, the, the the depth we create with our work um, is something that you know you can't do with uh, kind of shallow solutions that are out there that are kind of like some subset of a, of a larger suite but and that's you know we talked about the spend on HR technology moving up consistently year over year the user behavior is changing and it started cha changing back then Individuals said, I need a dedicated solution for better screening. I need a mm. dedicated solution for better assessments. Yeah. I don't need everything in, in, in one suite. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. And at some point, it makes sense again to have everything out of one system. But yeah. it's more the enterprise 50,000 yeah. um, headcount companies what you're talking about. Yeah. Or very complementary solutions, right? Um, so I don't know if... If I have my uh, ATS and I do put my scorecards in there, you know, the CVs should be in there as well. I don't need a separate solution to store no. my CVs, <laughs> but but then you know, so so there are these like complementary use cases for us as well. Like companies use us to pre-screen with assessments and then also to do reference check. It's it's very complementary. This is also what we do sometimes with people wise when yeah. we get hired for a certain company. Let's mm -hmm. say company stage early stage is below yeah. 100, and then they don't know which ATS to choose, mm -hmm. and then. They sometimes go with a one-fits-all solution. Mm -hmm. And then we say, okay, yeah, you can do that when you don't grow at scale because 
we see companies doubling each year, for instance, they need to go to a dedicated solution that is covering recruitment. And mm -hmm. within recruitment, you can use a scheduling tool, a, um, analytics tool, whatever, or an all-in-one solution, and then an add-on and so on. But yeah. I would not go with a generalistic approach unless you grow very slow and then it's maybe good enough. Yeah, yeah. This is also important depending on the environment and on mm -hmm. the, the plans you have. Yeah. So I think that, that totally makes sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and I think that is a great uh, development, right? Because the the demand for strong technology is increasing that you know that causes you know companies like us to work on really significant problem and build yeah. amazing technology um, and that overall kind of enhances the uh, experience and again connecting the dots here the dots here that's where the market is going right um yeah i, I, I um, think so so i think uh, it all fits fits very well and what what's the next step for high people and you that's a great question so we're we we have been kind of consistently sticking to our mission and our why from from day one and mm -hmm. we're continuing to do so right so we started with this question you know, how can the the people side of things can be uh, improved and uh, the answer for us was data and automation that is you know, the the journey we're on and and, and we're, we're we're consistently following um, and for us this year it really means to kind of double down on the whole selection piece, mm. you know, jobs not done. Um, this is, you know, there's so much more depth that we can surface and uncover. Um, on the product know. development and sales side. Yeah, precisely. And on, on product, you know, going deeper into, into these solutions. Um, we have one of the largest assessment libraries in the market already, but of course there's like almost an infinite number of assessments you can create because every job is different. Every company looks for something different. If you hire, a product manager and I hire a product manager. These will be two different candidates, two different roles, two different yeah. uh, job descriptions. Um, so yeah, for for us that really means kind of going deep there, you know, exploring ways how we can make our software even easier to use and better to operate uh, for our end users, um, leveraging AI, uh, for example. Um, uh, and on the go-to-market side of things, uh, to continue to grow in the key key geographies and key areas for us. Um, yeah, I think that these are the, the key things for us this year. Nice. And who, who is somebody I don't know, but you know, who I should maybe interview next on the show? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, is there a certain angle, a certain direction, or just anything? It can be anything. Maybe towards the, the field of either being a manager with a certain experience um, or perspective on mm -hmm. people topics mm -hmm. doesn't have to be hiring or, or talent acquisition yeah. or somebody within that field or somebody having a very specific um, idea about the topic yeah yeah uh, two people yes you should talk to my friend Nikhil uh, from Salando uh, who has been for the last couple of years has been building out everything tech mm -hmm. uh, in recruitment at Zalando mm -hmm. Uh, so incredible journey he has taken and kind of really building out that uh, over uh, multiple years. Uh, one and then uh, Julian, um, who's with Hybop, uh, who also was with me uh, at Peak On yeah. uh, in Copenhagen. Cool. He was with me here at High People for a, a brief time, um, and who's now with uh, Hybop in the HR management space. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so could you also intro me oh, to them? Sure. Yeah. Would be cool. And any final word, words from your end? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure. Um, 
my final words uh, would be not trying to like only ride the recruitment wave, but of course it's, it's kind of very like prominent there looking at our conversation and also what we do with, with our people. But um, the potential that uh, the, the potential that can be unlocked for companies with using real objective data to improve decisions is massive. And that's probably true for recruitment, but also for performance or for anything go to market related. Um, um, I think, you know, it's very easy to fall for a blueprint. It's very easy to fall for experience or for hiring somebody to get to the job. But I think um, consistently as a company sticking to leveraging objective data to improve the outcome of decisions is always a good choice. Uh, it's true for recruitment, uh, but it's also true for anything else you do. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Thanks a lot.